This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. This is the Talk of Fame Network, and because this is November, we must have a Hall of Fame vote coming up. And we do. In fact, from what I've been told, we're going to know next week who the 25 semifinalists for the class of 2019 are. And Ron, just wondering here, does this equate to suspense in the Borges household? Well, as long as Ty Law is peeking through the windows at the Hall of Fame but not in the building, <laughs> it certainly does because uh, he should be in there. And when, uh, hopefully the, maybe this will be the time. It'll be interesting to see as well uh, how many new names get added to that final 25 and how many of those new ones will not be first-time uh, eligible guys, but guys that we just haven't talked about before. Well, speaking of those new names, Goose, um, there are always a couple of surprises going from a preliminary list, and this year it's 102 to 25. Uh, is there anyone in particular that you're hoping for more than others? Yeah, defensive players, any and all. Only one <laughs> in every three Hall of Famers play defense. That's an imbalance that needs to be addressed. You know, over the years, I've seen too many great defenders slide almost unnoticed into the senior pool. Players like Alex Karras, Tommy Novus, Maxie Bond, Johnny Robinson, mm-hmm. Jim Marshall. Let's make sure the current era of defenders don't suffer the same fate. For the very first time, I'd love to see a slate of semifinalists heavy on the defensive side of the ball. But, but Goose, how about somebody from the other side of the ball? And that, that's front of the show, Mike Ken, offensive lineman Mike Ken. He's in his last year of eligibility. This is it. Yeah, I, I learned a year ago from Everson Walls that it's too late to launch a campaign in the 25th and final year of a player's modern era eligibility, so I'm not sure if it matters if he's on the ballot or not. Well, we don't have any candidates for the Hall's class of 2019 with us today. Sorry about that. But I'll tell you what, good news is we do have two guys who will be on the ballot sometime in the future, and that's pass rushers Dwight Freeney and Von Miller. We also have Hall of Fame voter Paul Koharski to give us his take on the best Tennessee Titans not in Canton run. Better tell him that doesn't include Marcus Mariota of what happened last weekend. As well as our annual guest this time of year, that would be Ulysses Harada from Primero EDS in Mexico City, which, of course, just lost Monday night's game. And, Ron, you've been in Mexico City for a game. You were there last year. You think it was a good idea to move the game to L.A.? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not there, but from looking at pictures that we saw of the field, it just would be a, a hazard. And my understanding is a little, some of the players in the union were, were ready to step in and say we're not playing on that field. Okay. I mean, imagine losing your career in Mexico on a game like that. And one of the biggest games of the year. It has to yeah. be in a top top flight field. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to talk to Ulysses about that soon, right after we break for commercial. So, no se mueva, lo estamos, the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there was a game coming up in Mexico City. Not anymore. It's going to L.A. because of uh, some bad turf in Mexico. But that just wasn't a game that they were going to have in Mexico. It was a clash of the Titans with Kansas City going against the Rams in what could be a Super Bowl preview. Of course, now it goes to Los Angeles. Well, as he's done the past two years, our good friend Ulysses Harada from Primero EDS, which is the biggest football website in Mexico, is with us to discuss what on earth happened. And Ulysses, muchas gracias, mi amigo. ¿Cómo está? Hola. Hello, guys. Who are you? We can have nice things down here. Uh, yeah, we're going to have the, the probably one of the games of the year, uh, a really huge game here in Mexico City. 
But the problem is that uh, the turf at the Azteca Stadium, it was really, really, really bad. Uh, it was in a really bad shape. Uh, the, in, in that stadium, they play soccer. They got concerts. And they play a game at Saturday. And somebody took a photo. And the, 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 the turf just looked horrible. And I mean really, really, really bad. They tried to patch it up. Uh, they do some, they do everything they could. But the NFL and at some point the players, the players, the players, the players say that maybe they won't play on Monday night. So the NFL just canceled the game in Mexico City and moved it back to LA. So yeah, that's the story. Uh, he was Ulysses. supposed to be the, the, the third game in Mexico Series, and it's supposed that uh, Mexico has contracts with the NFL games for 2021, but that seems right now like, uh, like, a, like a real long shot. U- Ulysses, what's been the reaction of people there to the announcement that the game's going back to the States? All right. Uh, the first thing I, I, I must tell you, uh, for incredible that this uh, this sounds, uh, they were not a 100% sale of the of the game because the Rams are the Chiefs. Even they are playing terrific. They're one of the uh, they're mo- one of the mo- of the least popular teams down here. So there are not a lot of Chiefs fans. There are not a lot of of Rams fans. Uh, but people are angry, yes, and they should be, but they understand that uh, the first thing is safety, and even that L.A., with all that's happening with the with the fires, uh, the stadium is in good condition. They play uh, last Sunday over there. They know that that uh, that is is uh, the stadium, and maybe the NFL office here in Mexico's fault, not 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 anything else. It's not it's not anybody else's fault. So, yeah, it's it's sad. Is people are angry because it was it was going to be a great game. It was going to be yeah, you know right. Monday night football to to nine one teams. It's it's just frustrating you know? and it jeopardizes what what is going to be on the NFL in Mexico on the, on the next year so yeah that's that that's not cool well, this is, how does how does this happen you got the <laughs> biggest game of the year I, I just you, you can blame everybody you want. How, how does this happen this was going to be the game of the year and it's going to be in Mexico City now it's not how does this happen yeah, that's uh, how everything everyone is wondering. Uh, first thing, they change the turf to a, to an every third. They change the turf on on July, uh, and then the problem is uh, uh, a couple of years ago the Aztec Stadium was home of one football team, but this season is home of two football teams. And then somebody got the magnificent idea. Uh, we got a Shakira concert a couple of, of weeks ago in that stadium. And we got uh, two more concerts in the last 15 days. You, you add up two concerts, uh, ba- uh, bad weather, you know, a lot of rains, a lot of football, soccer games. And that's what you get. And that's, that's just infuriating because if you got the NFL, uh, and if you are the NFL, you need to make sure that nothing is booked at least two weeks before the game. So, so the so the turf it could be in perfect, or maybe not perfect condition, but good conditions that people can play there. Now, and the problem is, some parts were good, some parts were really bad, and and that's the problem. It was uneven, an uneven, uh, an uneven uh, place. So it's, it's even 
is even riskier for an injuries. And if you imagine one of those teams lose lose one player from you know an ACL or or an Achilles or something like that, and they blame the turf in Mexico City, you can ruin one of the two of the best three or two or three best teams in NFL season for bad playing conditions. So I do agree is the is the correct decision. It it is frustrating. Yeah, you have the the go-to site for NFL football in Mexico, the Primero Diaz. When did you get rumblings there's something could be going wrong here? All right. It was on Saturday. Actually, I, I tweeted at Pro Football Doc a picture of the stadium, and I asked him what were the problems of uh, the risk of players to, to play in that kind of, of field for injuries. And then uh, that being uh, Washington Post took my tweet. So I feel kind of responsible to do that viral, but uh, I, I, I swear to God I didn't have any. It wasn't my intention to get the game canceled. But then it was like like worry. No? You, you see the, the, the turf and you start to worry. But then the problem is that the response was too late. No, there was a game on Saturday. They let the the the, the field rest one day, and the NFL uh, the NFL officials got here to examine the, the the turf. They did some work on, on the turf. They tried to change some uh, some of the grass, and they decided. I I think that was too late, and I think it was a really from all authorities, including the NFL office here in Mexico, to let that happen and to 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 react so slow to a problem that because it was it was funny uh, on all NFL events that were here in Mexico, they asked the guy that is in charge of the NFL office here in Mexico if he if he was sure that the turf is in good conditions, and he would say, yeah, yeah, uh, I think. Uh, the turf is in great We are not worried about the, the, the turf. We think we can, players can play there with no problem. And then this, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's a big deal because, you know, there's a lot of sponsors. There's a lot of people from the United States that make travel arrangements, all these booking on hotels, that, and the people from, out, uh, from outside Mexico City that, that want to come to the, to the game. It, it's, it's a big mess. And, and, and I think it's, it, it's 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 irresponsible for for people in Mexico. It's irresponsible for people at the NFL office in Mexico, and I I do think it could jeopardize the the rest of the NFL uh, international series here in Mexico. What about uh, uh, you, my dear friend? Uh, do you need armed guards and so forth now to protect you? As because uh, uh, eventually somebody's <laughs> going to try to hang you for this, don't you think? <laughs> Oh yeah, some some someone will try to blame me on that. I, I'm I'm pretty sure right? they they try to blame me on on, on Brady's stolen jersey. So yeah, somebody <laughs> will try to do it. So uh, I'm not worried about that. Uh, I, I'm I'm sad and I'm angry because it was going to be a great game. And, and uh, guys, I got tickets. I was going to be as a fan. I wasn't going to be at the press at the press box. Some some other guy here at the office will be there. And well, maybe a lot of you guys don't. Know your listeners, but I grew up as a Chiefs fan, and as a Chiefs fan, we're always prepared for the worst. And I was prepared for this game to, to, to something happen to the to this game. So I couldn't say that it took me by surprise, but I wasn't blindfolded. I I I, I, I always expect the worst with this team. So yeah, in a, in a way, 
it's it, it sucks, but but yeah, I, I maybe one part of me saw it coming, and and, and it's not it's not cool for for everybody else. But yeah, that's the situation here, guys. And it was going to be a shame. I was going to invite you guys here to Mexico City, watch the game, get some tequila. Ron knows about that. Yes, we I do. Really good mezcal <laughs> last last year. We got Tom Brady. It was a really good game. No, it wasn't a good game. It was a good event. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> well, Ulysses, we're, we're sad and angry too. And you know why? Because we got to go. Thanks so much for oh. the time. Muchas gracias. And uh, sorry, but adios. See you at the Super Bowl. It's been a, it's See been you a at the Super Bowl. Uh, I'd love to, ta- to talk with you guys anytime soon. And thanks for having me. Bye. You got it. Thank, you. Thank you so much, Ulysses. That was Ulysses Arata, Primero EDS in Mexico City. Up next, it's our own recount for this year's elections. Listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, sadly, Stan Lee, who, as you know, is the creative Spider-Man, Black Panther, Incredible Hulk, my favorite, Thor, much of the Marvel Universe. Well, he, he died this week at the age of 95, and it was a big enough story, and Stan, a, a big enough name, that it made all of the national nightly newscasts. As it should. He was a giant. And uh, because he was a giant, I'm wondering, guys, if Stan were up for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, who would you compare him to? Goose? George Tallis, whose football genius spread out over almost eight decades. Ron? Who would I compare him to? I would pair him to those guys on uh, all those guys who were at the Hub Mobile in Canton there in 1920. They created something that lasted forever, and so did Stan. So did he. That's right. Well, he made cameos in all the Marvel movies, Goose. Um, you think he'd show up in Canton for his induction? The Incredible Hulk would make sure he got there. <laughs> well, I'm certain he would, too. That's a big, big loss. Uh, here's to Stan Lee. Great, great man and a, uh, innovative artist and uh, innovative voice. Speaking of losses, um, there were plenty of them last week in our midterm elections, with most of them outside the state of Florida, which somehow in this day and age can't count votes. Don't ask me why. So there are recounts going on, and uh, as I said, don't get me started on that. All I know is they can prolong the elections, and if they can, so can we. And you know what, guys? We will, which means, that's right, we're back with our election debates. Hallelujah. Only these are recount debates with Rick and Ron taking more cracks at topics of interest in and around the NFL. And frankly, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Gentlemen, I use that term loosely, Ron. <laughs> you know the drill. So I'm going to get started. And let's just tell our listeners this drill goes something like this. I'll pose a question with one having 30 seconds to respond, the other having 30 seconds to challenge, and the original responding having another th- 15 seconds to close if he so chooses. Got it? Okay, guys, here we go. Ron, you're first. Yeah. Arizona's Larry Fitzgerald just passed Terrell Owens for second on the all-time list for receiving yards, and Julio Jones just became the fastest receiver to 10,000 yards. Now, a year ago, we were told that Terrell Owens and Randy Moss were among the two or three best receivers of all time by their sick offense, of course. So where then, I ask, if that's true, would you put Larry Fitzgerald and Julio Jones on your all-time list? Well, uh, the bulk of Larry Fitzgerald's career is over, and he's certainly uh, Hall of Fame worthy, so I put him on my list of uh, greatest receivers, if you consider all Hall of Fame receivers great, which I do. Uh, but you have to go through quite a few names before you get to his. Jerry Rice, Lance Allworth, Paul Warfield, Don Hudson, Randy Moss, Raymond Berry. And you even have to put him in my list behind a non-Hall of Fame, a Sterling Sharp, before you get to Larry Fitzgerald's name. As for Julio, 
He's not down by the schoolyard, but he's got miles to go to get from Atlanta to Canton. Well, this, is, this isn't much of a debate because I agree with just about everything Ron said. As well oh. you should. Whoa, no, whoa. You're judging guys by different standards. The, yeah. the Hudson's, Allworth's, Warfield's, Berry's, they didn't have to. They they had to fight defensive backs every step of the way. They had to earn their catches. There's no fight anymore. They've taken defense out of the game. So if you're a good receiver, you ought to have a, a thousand catches in your career and on a catch in a season. So it's a different standard. The, the older guys were better. Get off my lawn. Okay. So, sounds like there's no fight between you guys. So let's move on here. Goose, you're next. Drew Brees just moved into second on the all-time TDs list behind only Peyton Manning. Where do you put Drew Brees on your all-time QBs list? No, not in my top five. Graham, Montana, Elway, Staubach, Ball. Not in my top ten. Brady, Manning, Favre, Starr, Marino. Then there's Bradshaw, Lane, Tarkin, and Aikman, Van Brocklin. Let's hold off on the GOAT talk for Breeze. At his size, he'd have had a tough time competing in the 60s and 70s when defenses were allowed to brutalize the quarterbacks and receivers. Well, Gooseman, uh, he's not a GOAT, but he's not a lamb either. Uh, look, he's been among the best quarterbacks of his era the past 18 years. Uh, that's a long resume, and I think you have to be judged in the context of your own times and within his times. I don't think too many people would argue that Drew Brees wasn't uh, one of the best quarterbacks, probably one of the best two or three uh, of his era. Whether that gets him in the Hall of Fame or not, we'll say. His numbers may be phony, but all their numbers are phony. But I don't think Drew Brees is phony. He, he's the, if you're one of the best of your time, you're knocking on the door. Okay, Ron, if you want to put him above Otto Graham, Joe Montana, John Elway, Staubach. Didn't say that. That's fine with me. I'm not. <laughs> Didn't say that. Judge him by the Ronnie, times. it's yes. back to you. Oh, yes. When we're talking about Le'Veon Bell in 10 years, what will we say about what he did this year? We're going to say that uh, he clearly didn't go to uh, the Harvard Business School. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this guy just cost himself $850,000 a week for every week. That makes him a Hall of Fame idiot. Uh <laughs> You know, because you, it's $14 million you'll never make back. He will never Correct. make it back. Now, I got what he was doing at first because the Steelers were riding him, uh, you know, uh, like a mule. And, you know, his fear was he was going to break down and then you never get paid. Uh, but now he's definitely never going to get paid this $14 million, and I don't know how you make it back. So, uh, genius. Good man, you're up next. Good. Well, you're up next. Let's say he added a year or two to his life because of concussions. He didn't suffer during the 10 games or the 16 games. He sat out. Is, is $14 million worth the two or three years of, of extra life you're going to have? If that's the reason he did it, fine. Yeah, if it's a life choice, i got to agree that's with the gooseman. Well, are, Ron, life choices. <laughs> okay, Dr. Data, you're on the clock. We're running out of time here. The Rams, Chiefs, and Saints each have one loss. So who's the best of these teams, and do two of them reach the Super Bowl? Well, after the 10 weeks of the 2017 season, the Eagles and Patriots had the best records. They both won up the Super Bowl, so yes, there's a good chance. But after 10 weeks of the 2016 season, Dallas had the best record, 9-1. After 10 weeks, 2015, New England, best, 10-0. 10 weeks, 2014, Arizona, best, 9-1. 9-1 reached Super Bowl. Sometimes what looks attractive in November isn't what's selling in February. Ronnie Quick. Well, the Chiefs and Saints are playing with underwhelming defenses, in my opinion. Uh, they can win a shootout, uh, but I don't think they can win the Super Bowl or perhaps even get to it. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, as always. And now... 
Yes, that's a signal that we have someone, and Mr. Ron Borges in this instance, making the Hall of Fame case for a 100-point scorer he wrote about this week on our website, thebetalkoffamenetwork.com. And no, it's not Wilt or Frank Selvey. So, Ron, why don't you tell us who exactly it is? Uh, Pat, what Pat Harder did in the years between 1947 and 1951 is commonplace today. But in the early post-World War II NFL seasons, it was anything but. Those are the years when he became the first player in NFL history to score over 100 points three consecutive years despite playing only a 12-game season. Last year, 19 players eclipsed 100 points, although only one, the Rams running back Todd Gurley, was not a kicker. Uh, when comparing that with Harder's performance, one need to remember today's players play 25% more games than Harder did in the days when rosters were limited and the season ended before Christmas. Other players... Uh, like Hall of Fame wide receiver Don Hudson, had already exceeded 100 points before Harder first did it. Uh, but the bruising Cardinals and Lions fullback and place hitter was the first to pile up those kind of points year after year, leading the NFL in scoring in 47, 48, and 49, with 102, 110, and 102 points, while not even being the feature back in the Cardinals' offense. Instead, he was the reliable guy who consistently put points on the board. But scoring points was not all he did during his career. He finished second in the league in rushing uh, in 1946. It was twice in the top six in rushing, was among the top seven in rushing touchdowns seven times, and in total touchdowns four times during a career in which he would also play an integral part in the Lions' 1952 and 53 NFL championship uh teams before he retired. In 1948, he was the league's MVP, which was picked in those days by UPI. That's the year he rushed for 554 yards and 110 points. Harder would make All-Pro that season, something he had done the previous year and would do again in 49. He was also a second-team All-Pro in 1946, his rookie season, and again in 1950 before the Cardinals traded him to the Lions. For his efforts, Harder was named to the NFL's 1940s All-Decade team before going on to become an NFL official from 1966 to 1982. Little-known fact, he was the umpire in the famous Immaculate Reception playoff game, and he blew the call, too, just like everybody else who was there. He also was an alternate for the Ice Bowl game in 1967, and it's the only game he was damn glad not to be on the field for. Despite all his achievements, however, Pat Harder has never been discussed by the Hall of Fame Selection Committee. One would think the Veterans Committee might want to take a look back at the man who made 100-point scoring his norm in the late 1940s. Ron, how much did the trade of Detroit hurt him? You know, the careers are shorter then. I remember when Dick Stanfield was up, he was a short career guy, and some of the voters want to know why you trade a guy in the height of his career. How much did the trade hurt um, well, you should have helped him uh, because he played on two more league championship games in addition to the 47 Cardinals, which is the only Cardinals team, of course, to ever win the league title. Uh, then he retired. But he played sparingly in 1953, and I think it probably didn't hurt him as much uh, as you might think uh, because he was already sort of approaching the end of his career. you got to remember these guys, and he was one of them. Uh, he, he went to war, and he was uh, uh, in World War II for the two and a half years. So a lot of these guys, uh, you know, their careers were short because a part of their time was given to the country to fight, the, you know, the Great War. So did it hurt him? I don't think really because he won there. Um, but somehow he's fallen through the cracks. Like Clark. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, well, I mean, you're right. He's fallen through the cracks, Ron. But I guess my question to you is, why? I mean, you're on the senior committee, so is Goose. I, I haven't heard. I, I haven't heard his name talked about at all. Honestly, I don't think he's on any short list. Um, and it seems like he's just disappeared. And uh, I read what you said and wrote about this week, and I thought it was a fairly compelling argument. And uh, and yet, you don't hear anyone talking about him. 
is there any chance of the two of you rekindling interest in this guy? Um, because, as I said, I, I don't hear – I mean, each week we hear about guys who should be in. I, I think this is a pretty good case here, but you don't hear his name at all. No, I think it's probably highly unlucky because it's so long ago. You know, you're talking about 70 years ago. Uh, you know, and he played on the, the original million-dollar backfield, which is also known as the dream backfield, with Paul mm-hmm. Crispin and, and uh, Charlie Trippy was uh, – the halfback on that team, and he did become a Hall of Famer. And I think there was probably a, a, a sense with some guys voting in those days and saying, look, we, you know, we put one of those guys in. They only won one championship. Maybe yeah. they're only worth 500000 instead of a million. And so, <laughs> so he fell through the cracks, and I doubt we're going to be able to resurrect them, although Goose and I will probably give it a try. Well, good luck. Nicely done, Ron. Now we're going to take a break to recount the votes, guys, and see how you did. But don't go away, because when we return... We'll sit down with Denver's Vaughn Miller. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Linebacker Von Miller not only is one of the best pass rushers in today's NFL, he's one of the best pass rushers in the history of the NFL. Six-time All-Pro in seven NFL seasons, Vaughn is just one sack shy of 100 for his career, and that includes the playoffs, and can become the fifth fastest ever to reach that mark. Moreover, he's only one sack from joining Reggie White and DeMarcus Ware as the only players to produce 10 sacks in seven of their first eight seasons. Vaughn joins us today from Denver, and Vaughn, thanks so much for being here. Thank you guys for having me. That's, uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. It's going to be dope. Well, okay, I mentioned that sack milestone. How significant is that to you? I mean, it's a uh, it's a great indicator of how many years I've played. You know, you can't you can't play five years and you know four years and three years and you know hit that milestone. So I think it's um I think it's just a testament to uh, the type of you know organization that I've been with, the type of teammates that I've had, um, the type of uh, career that, that those two have uh, created for me. And because uh, you can't really get a hundred, you can't get a hundred sacks. You know, you can't get 100 sacks in two or three years, not even four years. It takes it takes a while. So it's a huge blessing to be able to play that long and stay with the Broncos and, you know, have the same, um, you know, teammates. I've been, if, I got, uh, if I got 100 sacks, you know, Wolf has, you know, been right next to me on probably, you know, 70 of those. So it's, it's great for, you know, my teammates. It's, it's great. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm, I'm honored to uh, be able to play this long. Well, we had a guy on here a couple weeks ago who I'm sure you know, and that was Robert Mathis. And we asked him, sacks or forced fumbles, which is more important? And he was, frankly, astounded to hear the question. He said, of course, it's forced fumbles. They're more disruptive. How about you? Sacks or forced fumbles? Forced fumbles, of course. I mean, a sack forced fumble is how you want to do it. I don't think it's a sack forced fumble recovery touchdown is probably the biggest play for a pass rusher that you can probably that you can probably have. So of course the forced fumble is king. Von Robert Mathis also told us he studied his favorite player, Derek Thomas, when he was younger. And I see you were number fifty eight in honor of Derek. So what what is it about Derek Thomas that you and so many of your peers admired? Oh for one uh, my coach in college, Coach Joe Collins, he coached Derek Thomas, and he coached Cornelius Bennett. And, um, you know, he came to Texas A&M, Joe Collins, he came, uh, he came to Texas A&M. And honestly, you know, I had heard of Derek Thomas, but I didn't really, 
I didn't really know, you know. Um, I didn't really know until Coach Kahn got there and, and he told me, he was like, man, you know, you remind me exactly. You you play just like Derek Thomas in it. And that really hit home for me. I, I went I went to the film guys and I went and got like uh, you know, all the cut ups and you know everything that everything that they had. I watched YouTube videos and the more videos that I watched of Jerry Thomas, just his, uh, his overall mentality, his mindset. He said, uh, I wanted to interview him. He said he felt like he was on offense. He felt like the offensive linemen were trying to stop him. He was like the running back and the offensive linemen were like the defense trying to stop him from getting to the quarterback. And um, that's the that I have. I really got an offensive position on defense. I attack, I attack, I attack every single play. And um, for him to say that in one of his interviews, I just I was connected from, from then on out. Okay, let me ask you about another great pass rusher. How did you benefit as a player in those three years you played alongside DeMarcus Ware? Um, playing with DeMarcus Ware was, was definitely life-changing. You know, I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, you know, the Cowboys, you know, the Cowboys, you know, are everything in Dallas. Uh, um, DeMarcus Ware, I, I modeled my game after him uh, you know, I wore you know tape. I tape. I wore tape and gloves just like he wore. I taped my wrists just like he did. I wore. I even wore like the towel that he wore. I, I wanted to do everything like the market. And um, you know, when the Cowboys let him go, I text the Cowboys let him go. I text my I text my my defensive uh, coordinator and I told him, hey, we need to get. Uh, I said we need to get Demarcus no matter no matter what. And I was and I was in Pensacola. I was in Pensacola, Florida at the time. I had just had ACL surgery. Coming off of ACL surgery. And um, I saw DeMarcus Ware. I saw I go across the ticker that they had let go of DeMarcus Ware. And I was like, I called my coach. I didn't even text him. I called him. I was like, hey, whatever we can do to get DeMarcus, we need to do it. And um, we did. Probably like, I want to say like probably like three hours after I saw his name go across the ticker, you know, I had said we, we had signed him. And I had already been friends with DeMarcus for the longest. Um, right when I came into the league, our very first game was, our very first preseason game was against the Dallas Cowboys. And, um, you know, of course, I was looking across the line at DeMarcus. And after the game, they came and we we talked uh, after the game for a minute. And that's where it all began. And, you know, to be able to play with DeMarcus, it was definitely life-changing. I got the, my locker was right next to his. And, um, you know, it was more than just learning moves and, you know, secrets on the field. He, he's been consistent over the course of his life. You know, he has uh, two beautiful kids. You know, uh, he's a leader of men. And um, just to be around him and just to, you know, really um, – you know, bounce ideas off of them and just really talk life. It was really life-changing for me. Now, you won the Super Bowl already. You've been a Super Bowl MVP. Uh, you got a pile of sacks, obviously, um, soon to have 100. Um, all that's really missing now from your resume is is a bust in Canton. Just wondering, does that thought ever cross your mind? Do you ever think about it? We had never. Brett Favre on a while back, and he said, no, nah, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. Then he laughed. Uh, you ever think about it? I'm going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so when they when the when they started the NFL Network, right? I think they started the NFL Network, and uh, it was when they started. They started in uh, 2005. Did they start 2004? Right. So whenever they started, whenever they started the NFL Network, um, we had Direct TV. I had Direct TV, and you know, I had just started. We just started playing football. Um, and I used to watch NFL Network all all day, and this is really like the beginning of the NFL Network. It wasn't really like they didn't have they didn't have like the um, Good Morning Football. They didn't have like you know uh, all of these you know cool shows that they have on NFL Network. Now it was really just highlights of um, highlights of interviews from like uh, past players. You know they had Walter Payton on there, and they um, 
talk about the Hall of Fame and all these guys. And this is before I had even got to high school. And I was just thinking, like, man, I want to go to the Hall of Fame one day. Like, this is the highest that you could possibly get. You know, they talking about uh, Walter Payton and, you know, his life and talk about all of these other greats on the, on the NFL Network. And I was like, man, I want, I want to talk about me like that one day. I want to have a career just like these guys. I want to impact the game. You know, I want... <clears throat> I want to have a, you know, my own bus. And I want to, I want to do all that stuff. And that was way before I had even got to. That was way before I even started high school football. Start playing high school football, and you get to college, and then you get to the league, and you just, you really just, um, you, you really are just blown away on how hard it is to make it to the, to make it to the Hall of Fame. How many, how many things have to go your way? How long you have to play? You got to stay healthy. You got to, you got to do this and you got to do that. Um, so I. When I got to the league, I really just didn't think about it. You know, before before I got to the league, I thought about it. But now, I don't even think about it. I really just keep my head down. I really just try to work as hard as I possibly can um, to take advantage of the moment. You know, I have a moment right now. Um, I'm in my prom. I'm playing the best football I could possibly play right now. I'm, I'm 29 years old. I'll be 30 in March. You know, it's... You know, it's it's not going. You know, it's, I'm in my prime. I don't know how many years I got left in my prime, but I'm definitely in my prime right now. So <laughs> I want to take advantage of this moment. So thinking about like the Hall of Fame and all this other stuff is is really is really not on my mind right now. I'm just trying to be the best football player I could possibly be. Well, you know, you mentioned how hard it is, uh, Vaughn, to get in there. I don't know if you know this, but roughly one percent of the players who ever played professional football are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, do you sort of respect the fact that it's that hard to get in, or does it bother you? Because uh, I think sometimes players don't understand that that's how hard it is to get in there, 1% of everybody who ever played. Uh, is that the way it should be? Should it be that hard? Um, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I, think me it's pretty, I, think it's, <laughs> I do too. I think it's pretty cool. I think, it's, I think that's what makes it so beautiful, and I think that's what makes it so dope and amazing. To make it to the Hall of Fame is because one percent of everybody who has ever played the game goes there, and it's a place where you live forever. It's a place where you know your your grandkids can go and find you, and and um, and really reminisce on the type of career that you had. So, you know, I think I think the Hall of Fame being an exclusive uh, exclusive group makes it beautiful. It makes it, it makes it what it is. Von, how did you benefit from practicing on a daily basis with Peyton Manning for four years? Man, practicing with Peyton Manning it was was incredible. It was it was just as life changing as having Demarcus on my team. Um, uh, both of those guys, Demarcus and Peyton, was you know they both franchise guys. Peyton Peyton Manning is probably he's the face of the game forever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, it could be it could be present. It could be past. It could be future. No matter what, whenever they talk about quarterback play, they're gonna talk about Peyton Manning. And um, you know having him having that type of you know star. Um, in a locker room, having that type of uh, having that type of leadership, uh, it really it really showed me. It was a great example and showed me of, uh, on, on what it takes to do it and um, what it means to to be a, a true goat. You know, the, both of those guys are goats. Peyton Manning is the goat. So I, I got to see it and I got to experience it and I got to witness greatness every single day. And I feel like that. that I feel like it, it it wore off on me. You know, I still you know reflect on the time of. On the time back when we had Peyton Manning, and I still think about like, dang, what would Peyton say? What would Peyton say to the team right now? What would Peyton say to the rookies right now? Um, we lost three games straight. Like, what? What, what would Peyton do right now? Um, and he always had he always had the best things to say. He always had the best things to do. Um, and then he wasn't and he wasn't even a, a, like a he wasn't even like a rah rah guy or a great you know um, 
you know, he he played with his he he showed by example. You know, he was a great player week in and week out, and on top of that, he was a great leader as well. And, you know, having a type of uh, you know having a type of leadership around it definitely you know, wore out for me. I, I try to you know be I try to put my I try to have my 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 best Peyton Manning impression. You know, every day at the facility, I try to be the best version of Peyton that I could possibly be. He was a, he was a true leader, and um, he definitely has a, he definitely had a. Um, it definitely had an effect on on my style of leadership as well. Speaking of that, obviously, as you, as you just mentioned, the, you know, the team has struggled a little bit. You know, most of the time you've been, you've had tremendous success. Um, how do you approach, or how are you approaching this season? And, and what do you sort of, when you look at the, at the situation when the team is struggling, how much sort of responsibility do you take for? Uh, helping other guys get through it, leading these other kids uh, and uh, that are younger than you. I think uh, I think it wears it wears on me more than you know other on uh, on some of my other teammates because I I feel like I I take full responsibility you know on uh, on where we are in the season. You know that's what that's what Peyton would do. If Peyton was Peyton was you know three and six. You know he would take full responsibility. Of it. He wouldn't say well you know. We gotta get this. You know, we gotta get this going. You know, whenever you're three and six, it's, it's on the franchise guys. And it's definitely, it's definitely on me. Um, just haven't been able to make those game changing plays this year. Just haven't been able to, you know, really, like, you know, put those plays out there to really get things that I've been making. I just haven't, um, you know, been able to do that. But on the other hand, we we have a great team. You know, the record says three and six, but we've been in every one of those games except one. We play hard. Um, we've got great talent. Um, when we won the Super Bowl in twenty in twenty fifteen, we had the same type of uh, it was the same type of team and it was the same type of season. The difference was we was winning those tight games. We we were winning those those very close those uh, one touchdown games. We were winning those those ten point games. We were we were winning by ten points. So we're just on the other side of those, and you know I, I know firsthand that it could be you know a couple of plays here, a couple of plays there, and we can easily be on the other side. But you can't really live in that world. The world that we and I'm living in it is now. You know, we are we're three and six. Um, we still got a lot of games left, and we can still make, you know, whatever it is we want to make out of this season. And I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. We just got to go out there and you know make it happen. Hey, Vaughn, we got to run, but thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with the rest of the season. All right, appreciate you guys. Thanks again. Thanks, Vaughn. Thanks. That was Denver linebacker Vaughn Miller. Up next is the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time, so Shay, blow the whistle on us. That's the two-minute drill. That's right, it's the two-minute drill. I have this week's question, so let's go. Most popular guy in Dallas today, Dak Prescott, Zeke Elliott, Leighton Vander Esch, or Rick Goslin? Amari Cooper, the new savior of the franchise. Oh. <laughs> Clark, it is always the goose man. Kidding me? He's the king of Dallas. Well, now he's he Jerry Jones. King. He's the prince of Dallas. That's right. How soon before Terrell Owens enters the 49ers Hall of Fame? Hopefully not before R.C. Alley Oop Owens. Oh, I like it. I think they'll show up with that invitation the same way he showed up in Canton. Not. <laughs> well, how soon before the Talk of Fame enters the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Clark, the Talk of Fame Network enters the Hall of Fame every August as visitors. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the truth is we're already there. Gooseman is on the wall. He is on the wall. A week ago, Hall of Famer Troy Aikman said that Dallas Cowboys should blow everything up and start over. What does he think now? 
He still sees a team with a losing record that needs an overhaul. One game does not a season make. I think he thinks blow up everything and start all over and blow up the Eagles too. <laughs> right. Andrew Luck has more TD passes than everyone not named Patrick Mahomes. So why aren't people talking more about him? The same reason Troy Aikman wants to blow up the Cowboys. There's little love for losers. Right. His team is 4-5 and five in a division that stinks. And he's been gone so long, he's become yesterday's soap opera in a today's world. <laughs> wow. Larry Fitzgerald, Ella Fitzgerald, or F. Scott Fitzgerald? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Mm. Good one. But I go with Ella. Is that live or is she Memorex? She was always live. Always live. What should the Jets do about Todd Bowles? Give him some players. Too many coaches are judged by the performance of the GMs. Agreed for once. Get him some football players. Hugh Jackson to Cincinnati. Like it or loathe it? 100% apathetic to it. (laughs) I like it for you, but it won't help Marvin. Samsung's going to start testing mind-controlled TVs. How soon before we have mind-controlled quarterbacks? Samsung is about 10 years late to the game. That's what those helmet mics are for. Yeah, Paul Brown already tried that and won seven championships. Sean McVay's mother is upset with his language. What did she tell him? Take up baseball, a sport where you can put your mitt in front of your mouth. She said, shut your bleeping mouth, you bleeping moron. <laughs> That's the end of the that is the end of our bleeping first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have Dwight Freeney, Paul Kaharski, and 60 more minutes coming up, so don't move. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And in this hour, we're going to hear from former pass rusher Dwight Freeney as our pass rush series continues. Hall of Fame voter Paul Kaharski on the best Tennessee Titans not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And our own Ron Borges on, well, I don't know, something he doesn't like. Guaranteed, it's Borges or Bogus. And it's worth waiting for. Um, But as you guys know, we often and honestly too often have to reserve this segment for someone notable who's passed on. And this past week, unfortunately, was no exception. Uh, First of all, there was former Giants running back Ron Johnson, who lost a battle with Alzheimer's at the age of 71. And then there was Wally Triplett, a trailblazing back who was one of the first African-Americans drafted into the NFL. He passed away at the age of 92. Yeah, I, I covered Ron Johnson in his final season with the Giants in 1975. You know, as, as a Detroit native, I was quite familiar with uh, the University of Michigan program. And Johnson was certainly a legend there. School's first African-American captain, All-America, first on NFL draft pick. But I'll tell you, the NFL was a more violent game then, and careers didn't last as long. You know, he played seven seasons and was a starter in all of them. He was a good player on a bad team in New York. Well, Ron, I mentioned uh, Wally Triplett as well, and something I didn't know about him, uh, he was inducted into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame earlier this year. His appearance is part of Penn State lore. Apparently the bowl asked Penn State to consider the possibility of leaving him and another black teammate, Denny Hoggard, at home for the game and then segregated Dallas, and his teammates responded by saying, We are Penn State. There will be no meetings. And that was a reference to a previous Penn State team that voted rightly to cancel a game that then segregated Miami. 
Well, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, you induct a guy <laughs> into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame, but you wouldn't let him play in the Cotton Bowl. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like it's like what we you know wacky times. Uh, but you know, it's always a great thing when when you see teams uh, stand up like this. Uh, this famous nineteen fifty one University of San Francisco's undefeated team with Ollie Matson on it. Right. Uh, uh, made clear to the Cotton Bowl, Sugar Bowl, and Orange Bowl people that they would not play without him. Consequently, they didn't get invited to any of those games. And to me, anytime a group of young people decide to stand with their players uh, and their teammates rather than stand with a guy in an ugly sports coat that's probably chartreuse and blue, uh, I'm with them. <laughs> yeah, I'm with them too. Um, well, anyway, Wally Triplett and Ron Johnson, you are and will be missed and remembered. Rest in peace. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. So there's a lot of stuff for us to complain about with today's NFL, right? You know, we do, and like those orchestrated end zone celebrations that we were all over last week before Ron basically told his critics to get off my lawn. I like that, Ron. That was good. But there's a lot to celebrate, too, and two items, guys, come immediately to mind. The first is what... Rams tackle Andrew Whitworth did, which was donate last week's game check to a fund for the families of the 12 victims killed in the Thousand Oaks shooting. He did it, he said, because he didn't think that, quote, sitting there wondering, unquote, was the best way to help. So he didn't. He donated what he said is $60,000 after taxes. Then, of course, there were the San Francisco 49ers who invited the Paradise High football team from what was once Paradise, California, now gone because of wildfires, to Monday night's game and had players and coaches stand with them during the national anthem. I thought both were classy and welcome moves by people who don't get enough credit, an offensive lineman, for instance, and a struggling football team. And you know how they say sports doesn't build character as much as it reveals it? Well, guys, we just found out about the character of Andrew Whitworth and the 49ers organization. Yeah, I agree with you on both counts, Clark. You, you know, we all know that uh, professional athletes, uh, like the rest of society, frankly, do a lot more good than bad as a group. Uh, but the bad too often grabs the headlines or most of the headlines. Yeah. Uh, you know, but these are really two examples of, of people getting outside of themselves and doing something about the problems that they see. And in the end, uh, that's really what all the, any of us can do, right? Something. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, well, anyway, nice job, Andrew Whitworth and the San Francisco 49ers. Um, we mentioned in the first hour how we're going to hear about the Hall of Fame semifinals next week, and we are. It's going to be next Tuesday, November 20th. So uh, because we're a Hall of Fame show, I want to take one last look at this preliminary class that we voted on last month and get your take, guys, on what we might see moving ahead. Now, Goose, I want to start with you. There are five quarterbacks on the ballot, the preliminary ballot. Randall Cunningham, Jeff Garcia, Dave Craig, Donovan McNabb, and Steve McNair. Any of these guys make it through to the next round? Ken Anderson is sitting in a senior pool. He was the first quarterback to complete 70% of his passes in a single season. He was an NFL MVP. He took a team to the Super Bowl. He won four passing titles, two in the 70s, two in the 80s. If he can't get a bust, I see no reason to discuss Cunningham, Garcia, Craig, McNabb, or McNair. Okay, I'll take that as a no. Um, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to running backs. Um, there are fourteen there, Ron, excluding Edgerin James, who's been a semifinalist ever since he's become eligible, and that was in two thousand sixteen. Is there anyone who can make it here? Uh, Herschel Walker, maybe. I, I don't know. Well, you know, if this actually was the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as they say, yeah. Herschel Walker would already be in. Uh, is thirteen thousand seven hundred eighty-seven rushing yards uh, uh, combined in the USFL and the NFL will be fifth all time. His combined yards of 25,000 
545 yards would be first, ahead of Jerry Rice by over 1,500 yards. But it isn't, so he won't. And neither will anyone uh, else from this group. I fear even Edgerin, who I believe belongs in the Hall. Okay, well, let's move on to wide receivers. Uh, we had two of them chosen for the Hall a year ago, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens. Now we have nine on the preliminary ballot, including Ike Bruce and Tory Holt, both friends of the show. Goose, whom do you like here? And, and why doesn't someone like, let's say, a Heinz Ward honestly get more traction? Well, I think Isaac Bruce has the best case for enshrinement. He's fifth all-time receiving yards with over 15,000. He had a 100-catch season, owns a Super Bowl ring. I think if Heinz Ward had caught that Super Bowl-winning touchdown pass against the Cardinals, not Santonio mm. Holmes, yeah. he may already be in Canton. But Bruce has the signature catch, the 74-yarder that won a Super Bowl against the Titans. I think Ward lacks the signature catch. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on that. Um, offensive line, that's where we have a logjam, guys. 15 nominees. Give me a surprise pick who could slide through. Ron? Uh, hopefully Mike can. He's in his last year of eligibility, uh, and it's. Uh, I think a goodly number of voters realize that, and I think hopefully a lot of them realize he deserves to have been discussed uh, already, and he's not. Uh, and this is his last shot, so I think we need to open the door and usher him into the room, and whether we open the big door into Canton uh, is a debate for another day. Yeah, I agree. All right. I, if if Ken if the committee looks at the slate from a wider lens, I think Ken gets a good look. You know, this is the last year. If if you don't get in now, you go you fall into the abyss. Okay, everybody <laughs> yeah. in the abyss is a long shot. And if you're going to put Mike Ken in, do it now. I felt the same way thing about Everson Walls last year, and I didn't yeah. put him in. So right. Okay, let's go to Goose's favorite side of the ball. That'd be defense, Ron. Defense. We have seven defensive linemen. And there were two surprises a year ago. That'd be Leslie O'Neill and Bryant Young, both semifinalists for the first time. Do either or both make it this time? Well, it'd be, it would be great if they both did. They're both deserving uh, of serious consideration. We've talked uh, uh, about the both several times on the show and on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. Uh, uh, the fact is, you know, Leslie O'Neill is 13th all-time in, in sacks. He's tied with LT, and maybe he'll finally get in the room. You know, I watched him play a lot. Uh, when I was out there with the Raiders. I covered him. Yeah, and you covered him. So we both know what a lot of those guys in the room don't know. That was a that guy was a disruption maker. Right. right. And, uh, you know, they didn't like him because he talked a little bit and was ahead of his time. But that guy could play football. Goose going to have to hustle here. 14 linebackers, including London Fletcher, friend of the show, in his first season of eligibility. What do you see here? Well, Carl Mecklenburg and Clay Matthews are sentimental choices. I think Carl Banks and Wilbur Marshall are long overdue. Fletcher and Zach Thomas, more recent vintage, deserve to be discussed. A lot of good defensive players need to be discussed, linebackers included. Okay, well, there are a lot of good defensive players at defensive back. There are 18 choices, 18, including finalist Ty Law and John Lynch, and first-year eligible Champ Bailey. Ron, I'm going to exclude you from this since you're presenting Ty Law. Goose, who gets through? Well, Bailey and Law will get through, so will Ed Reed. I think this may be our first chance to discuss the Roy Butler. You know, I think the clock is ticking on Lynch and Atwater. And I wish it would start ticking on Albert Lewis and Darren Woodson. Both are passed over for all decade claim and shouldn't have been. Both are Hall of Fame worthy. 
Okay. Lastly, Ron, how many of the 11 coaches get through to the semifinals? I mean, Clark Shaughnessy's in there, and I'll be honest with you, I can't believe he's not already in. Well, I'd be happy, I'd be happy with one, and it's Shaughnessy. You know, he invented the T formation, yeah. and then he got hired by George Halas to come up with a defense to stop the T formation. That's about as good as it gets. He was a winner briefly as a head coach with the Rams, lost a job because he was such a pain in the ass that the owner rather lose with somebody else than win with him, which is a great hallmark of something. Not sure what, uh, but I think he's, like you say, he's long overdue, and I'd love to see him get in there. I wouldn't count on it, however. Well, that means we're about to go to as good as it gets. That means it's our Ron Borges. Yes, sir, as good as it gets with his Borges or bogus rant. I'll say nothing more. Ronnie, go for it. Eric Reed doesn't play for the Buffalo Bills, but lately he's clearly been listening to Buffalo Springfield and their classic <laughs> protest song, For What It's Worth. Reed and former 49ers Super Bowl quarterback Colin Kaepernick were all, for all intents and purposes, blackballed out of pro football, in my opinion, before Reed finally signed with the Panthers uh, six weeks ago, uh, nearly a year after they filed a collusion lawsuit against the NFL uh, and its owners. Uh, Kaepernick remains in exile uh, on Nike's advertising team. Uh, but Reed has a job. But despite landing that job, he continues to kneel during the anthem. And uh, and following being ejected a week ago for a borderline late hit on Ben Roethlisberger, he claimed he was being unfairly and suspiciously targeted by repeated league drug testing. He also professed to not know you could have even be thrown out of a game, which is maybe why they're testing him. But anyway, uh, as Stephen Stills wrote in November of 1906 following the Sunset Strip curfews, Paranoia strikes deep into your life. It will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line. The men come and take you away. Whether the NFL is trying to take Eric Reed away or at least find a reason to make him go away, the, reason, the issue of being repeatedly drug tested does not seem bogus to me. The NFL testing policy, which was negotiated with the unions, is allegedly random. Reed was tested when he initially signed, as was required, but he's since been tested four times in six weeks. That don't seem random to me, brother. <laughs> the day after Reed cried foul, the league issued a statement that 10 players are randomly picked by a computer each week. While it's true, it seems something more than random when the same guy is selected four times in six weeks from nearly 100 eligible players on his team. If he, if he hit 21 in blackjack that randomly, we'd all be living in Aruba. Reed may be paranoid after all he's been through since he and Kaepernick first took a knee during the anthem to protest uh, various societal ills that fall more heavily on people of color. But that doesn't mean no one's chasing him. Nothing bogus about that. Ronnie, you a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am in this case because one thing I do believe in is there's no such thing as coincidence. As one of my friends used to say, ain't no such thing as random shootings. <laughs> and, you know, to a great extent, it's the same in this case. I mean, come on. Four times in six weeks, the computer spit his name out. It's not that long a name. I mean, come on. Ron, something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Thanks so much. Up next, it's the best Tennessee Titans not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network and the Buffalo Springfield. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Nearly every week this year, we've devoted time to one Hall of Fame voter to tell us who his choice for, I don't know, player, coach, GM, owner, you name it, from his team um, that's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame should be there. And today, our Hall of Fame voter is none other than Paul Kuharski who covers the Tennessee Titans and pushes us and everyone else off the air when he's on the radio in and around Nashville. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Clark. How are you doing? 
Fine, thank you. Um, okay, let's get right to it. Whom do you have? Best Titan, not in Ken. Who is it? Well, it's Kevin Mawai, who's been in the final 10 the last two years in a uh, crowded batch of offensive linemen. Uh, who we've got to start to move along, and it's difficult to do, obviously, but uh, five different players have gone past 1,000 yards in a single season under under a line with Kevin Y as the pivot, Chris Warren, Curtis Martin, Travis Henry, Lindell White, Chris Johnson. And according to Elias, the, the running backs Mawai has blocked for nine, 90 100-yard regular season rushing games, the most by any NFL offensive lineman. I think he's a very unique player in NFL history, center, uh, underrepresented position, uh, all things considered. Not quite safety, but up there. And uh, a unique guy, um, eight-time Pro Bowl selection. Played for some very, very good teams, some very, very good coaches. Uh, an all-decade team player in the 2000s. And uh, a lot of those guys, Jim Ringo, Jim Langer, Mike Webster, Dwight Stevenson, Mike Webster, Damani Dawson, all uh, Hall of Famers already. Well, as you certainly know, Paul, uh, he's been a two-time top ten finalist the last two years, too. But so have offensive linemen Tony Baselli and Alan Fanica. So how do you convince voters that he's the most worthy? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. And, I mean, Steve Hutchinson certainly very worthy as well. And I, I don't know, you know, how to differentiate. I support all of their candidacies. Uh, I covered Hutchinson for a year myself as well. I, I think they're all Hall of Famers. Somebody has to go first, which means, you know, some voters are going to have to come off of somebody and go to somebody else in order to break the log jam. Um, and, and I've been considering what I'll say on my behalf uh, this, this year, presuming uh, he's in the final 15, which I think he will be, to, to get him um, into the final 10 and into, into the final five and ultimately in. And I wonder if that isn't about the scarcity of centers, if it isn't about how he's unique uh, among the players at his position, and if it isn't maybe that you have to start somewhere and that it makes sense to start with the guy who snaps the ball. Um, you know, the guy who, who's, who's got his hands on the ball. I mean, it, it's kind of a simple uh, simple thing, but maybe it's a simple answer. Paul, I, I was going to ask you, since you mentioned uh, about centers um, not being in the Hall of Fame, I think there's one in the last 20 years, and that's Damani Dawson. Why do you think that is? I mean, you, you mentioned everything starts with the center, and you're right, but for some reason... Voters just <laughs> seem to ignore centers and, and sometimes guards, but interior linemen. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not glamorous, right? Um, you're in traffic. Um, you know, tackle position has become more and more. Uh, I don't want to say valuable because I think it's always been valuable, but uh, you know, there's, heck, there's been a best-selling book written about the blind side, and it's become more and more apparent just what the job of, of the left tackle has been. And then I think the you know the right tackles kind of caught on caught on to that and kind of grabbed the coattails, and and the guards and the centers operating in the middle of that. It's a it's a, it's a less glamorous job. And it's it's harder for those of us who haven't played it, haven't coached it, to to see it. I mean, it, it's crowded in there, and uh, there are no stats, so to speak, um, to to define it. And so you're going on on word of mouth uh, by people. 
Um, you know, and I think I've got some good word of mouth in support of Kevin Moai. You know, Mike Munchak, who I knew pretty well during his time as the Titans uh, offensive line coach and then as, as their head coach, who's now uh, the offensive line coach in Pittsburgh, said that Kevin Moai had had solutions all the time. He'd always find a way to overcome something he shouldn't be able to. Almost like the MacGyver of football, he was going to find a way. I don't know how many guys, you know, listen, there are innumerable uh, Hall of Fame worthy NFL players out there. But I think it's kind of cool to find guys that something unique, really unique, could be said about. And when you have one Hall of Famer saying about another potential Hall of Famer that he's MacGyver-like, um, you know, I don't know how often you're going to find a quote like that, and I would hope it helps distinguish him. <laughs> hope guys in that room remember who MacGyver was. <laughs> yeah, well, that's some, a good thing. I probably will. have to, I, yes, I probably have to help remind them. Right. Well, well. Uh, well, well, Paul, one of the guys I always wonder about uh, with, uh, with the organization is uh, Bud Adams, you know, he's, he's one of the founding fires, obviously, at the AFL with Lamar Hunt. Without Bud, there is no AFL. Uh, he paid the bills for a lot of guys. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing guys, no disrespect to some of these other owners, uh, like Eddie DeBarlow, that are going in. But to me, the founding fathers of these leagues are really the key guys. And, and Bud was as important as Lamar was uh, uh, to the AFL. Uh, a, do you think he'll ever get in? And B, why do you think he seems to have slipped through uh, without noticing? Well, I think the biggest thing, and and, uh, and this is going to happen inevitably with an owner who's relocated his franchise, is that his core his core backers <clears throat> are put in a tough position, you know. So a John McClain who who sits on our panel and represented the 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 Oilers in the Houston market <clears throat> has a has a little bit of a harder time making a case because he uh, because because Bud Adams chose to desert that market and I understand that there are all kind of circumstances that surrounded that Bud Adams was was a maverick and a hugely influential person uh, in the founding of the AFL and in the in the financing like you said and the, and he made a lot of things happen and I do think it would be hard to write the history of the league without him um, but that said <clears throat> And, you know, it's not as bad as the Art Modell story, but when you turn your back on a good football market, I think it's very hard to make the case that that you're a guy that's got to be in. And so I, 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 I would help make the case for Bud Adams if he reached that level. But I think it's understandable to me that you could say that the latter part of Bud Adams' career undid the earlier part of Bud Adams' career, and not just the move. I understand that the finances and the logistics, you know, look, he had a, he butted heads with Bob Lanier, the mayor of Houston, and it was that simple, really, in terms of what he felt was a, a business decision he had to make in terms of leaving Houston and finding a stadium in Nashville, and a thing that wasn't that bad for the league, right? He brought the league to a a thriving market ahead of the curve. Nashville's now a huge, booming city. As you can hear from some of this music over my shoulder where I am in downtown Nashville as we, as we speak. Um, and Houston recovered well. But what, what Bud Adams did that bothers me <clears throat> in his candidacy is starting in 1997 or a little bit before when the move was complete is 
He then chose to not be a player in the NFL at all. He gave away his vote to the commissioner and everything moving forward in exchange for his ability to move this team to Nashville, Tennessee, to the commissioner. And he was an automatic yes on anything that Paul Tagliabue or Roger Goodell needed. Then going forward, he was on board with the NFL. Now, that's almost 20 more years of his career where he could have been a continued influence, uh, influential owner that he just gave up. And and I, if I was asked my honest opinion, you guys are asking me it, that hurts his case to me. Uh, I understand all that came before it, and I, I don't downplay its importance. But then just saying, you know what, I've been an influential person in this league and the formation of everything, but I'm going to hand that over to, to get my ticket to go to Nashville. And now you guys do whatever you want, and I'm on board. <laughs> I don't know. You guys tell me if I'm being overly harsh, but I think that weakens the case. Well, it's yeah, an interesting argument. It's an interesting yep. argument uh, because on the uh, on the front half of his career, he had so much to do with not only starting the AFL, beating the NFL to get Billy Cannon, uh, going so far as to give him his wife's Cadillac and let Billy Cannon drive it home, and his wife <laughs> his wife standing on the porch and went out my cargo. Uh, and had to go buy another true story. Uh, you know, if, if, if he had supported the Titans financially, uh, there might have been no Jets and there might have been a, a collapse of the AFL. So it's interesting. You're right. I mean, uh, uh, the back end of his career, he was one guy. In the front end of the career, he was the other. But yeah. as you said yeah. earlier, Paul, you certainly can't write the history of the game uh, and leave him out. That, that, that's for sure. Hey, and these guys are eccentric, right? All, all of those owners from that era, eccentric. Right. I don't know how excited you are about a, a picture of uh, of your new Hall of Famer flipping the double birds at the Buffalo Bills uh, after a, after a win at what is now Nissan Stadium. It wasn't the. It, it's not the hanging next to his bus. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they were a little different those days than they are today. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Paul, quick question. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds here. Eddie George, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, look, I like him a lot. He, he was a hugely impactful player uh, for this franchise. But, look, Emmett Smith, Curtis Martin, Barry Sanders, Marshall Falk, Terrell Davis, Jerome Bettis, LaDainian Tomlinson, all contemporaries. Edron James, more yards and a Super Bowl. Fred Taylor, one more yard per carry average. Those guys aren't in the Hall of Fame. That just seems like an awful lot of running backs. I really like him. He's the guy you had to account for on that generation's Titans. But to me, a great player who falls outside that list. Okay, Paul, thanks. I'll take that as a thumbs down. Thanks for the time. See you at the Super Bowl. Thanks, guys. You got it. That was Hall of Fame. Go to Paul Kaharski. Up next, it's a guy who someday may be ticketed for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So who is it? Don't touch that dial. You'll find out right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, you don't need us to tell you that Dwight Freeney was one of the great pass rushers of his era. You already know. I mean, Dwight ranks 19th on the all-time list with 125 and a half sacks, just one behind Hall of Famer Derek Thomas. 
And he teamed with last month's guest, Robert Mathis, to give the Indianapolis Colts one of the most feared edge rushes in the NFL. One, in fact, that helped the Colts win a league championship in 2006. Now, Dwight went to seven Pro Bowls, hit double figures in sacks seven times, including an NFL best 16 in 2004, and forced a league-leading nine fumbles as a rookie in 2002. Now he's with us today to talk about his pass rush. And Dwight, before we get started, one favor to ask of you. Please don't rush the hose, okay? <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm retired now. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> hey, it's Dwight, at 6'1", you lack the participle height the NFL wants from its defensive ends. But after running a sub 4440 at your campus workout, your draft stock took off. The Colts wound up selecting you with the 11th overall pick of the 2002 draft. What were your draft day expectations that morning? Well, you know, I knew at, you know, after the draft day that um, they were saying, hey, you know, you're going to be drafted anywhere from the 11th pick to, you know, 29 or 30 or something like that. Now, we all know, you know, sometimes it doesn't always go the way that people project. So, you know, for me, you know, I didn't know anything, you know, from I just said, hey, you know what? I don't care where I go. Wherever I go, I'm going to have fun. You know, this is a dream. I'm accomplishing one of those goals that you set, you know, in the beginning of time where you say, I'm going to play in the NFL one day. So it didn't matter to me. I was a Giants fan growing up. So, I mean, there was only, that was the only team I was kind of leaning towards. Like, somehow get drafted by the Giants would be the dream coming out of college. But outside of that, you know, I, it, it didn't matter who drafted me, but I was definitely excited once I heard it was a Tony, Tony Dungy-led um, team in defense because I've heard all the great things about him. Well, obviously you went to the right place. Uh, as Clark mentioned, we had Robert Mathis on our show uh, uh, last week and uh, talked to him about uh, Tony Dungy and how Dungy placed a greater emphasis on speed than size. How did he impact your game, uh, both as the head coach of the Colts and with the, with the defense that he designed? Well, you know, I think the, for one, you know, he's just a, you know, he's one of those coaches that it goes beyond just on the field stuff. You know, you you kind of look at him as more of a mentor, father figure type of guy than just hey, he's the head coach. You know, you kind of want to model your life around or the way that he kind of carries himself and and you, you hold yourself up to a certain standard that he would want you to be. So you know, that's a day to day. That's a day-to-day thing. That's what you do, you know, off the, you know, when you're not in practice, when you're hanging out with your boys, you know, you always remember what Coach said and the things that he stands for. And, and it kind of helps you um, navigate through life, really, the, the right way. Um, now, obviously, from a football perspective, you know, Coach Dungy, you know, it was all about speed, quickness, and, and, and using those types of weapons to, to um, attack offenses. And that's how he drafted, you know, the, you know when he drafted the Indianapolis Colts and, and picked the guys, it was all quick, fast, you know, speed guys, which I liked because for me, obviously I was one of those guys, but if you think about it, you know, we're not playing basketball. We're not out here grabbing rebounds and blocking shots, you know. So for, for us, it's about, you know, starting at point A and getting to point B. Dwight, the Colts have an edge rush compliment the following season. They drafted Robert Mathis. Like you, he lacked the prototypical size to play in, but not the speed. Like you, he led the NFL in sacks one season. How competitive was it between you and Robert during those 10 seasons you played together? And did you feed off each other? Yeah, it was great. You know, it was something that, you know, every day you go out there and practice, you see, you know, your brother on the other side. You know, it was like we had a singular heartbeat, you know, a singular mindset. 
you know, when we went out there to do the things we needed to do, you know, to help this team win, you know, and, and that's kind of, you know, that was kind of the story with, with us. You know, we made sure that we took care of it. We had a great, great Hall of Fame D-line coach, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame, is John Turling, to where as though he made rushing the passer fun. You know, he, he taught us, you know, lessons and things that other greats like John Randall and Neil Smith and other guys that he's coached went through and and uh, even Jay Dolman. You know, so he, he kind of, you know, put that on us and went so when it was just me and him, you know, and he made a play. You know, I, I'm not going to say he made a play, so I had to make a play. We always felt like we had to make the play. So it's never like turned on, turned off. But when he made a play and a big play, it just energized me even more. You know, so if I was giving already 120%, I'm giving 180%, you know, just because, you know, okay, you did it. Now it's my turn. And then it's my turn. I did it. And said, okay, it's your turn. You know, and that was kind of the mentality that we had. Now you played right defensive end uh, in the scheme out there in Indianapolis, so you lined up against uh, really all the Hall of Fame left offensive tackles of that uh, uh, yeah. decade, Jonathan Ogden and Pace and uh, uh, Walter Jones and all those guys. Um, who gave you the most problems, the most difficulties? Who did you look forward to seeing least? Definitely Jonathan Ogden. I, I 100% will say that because he's a guy that I, I just – felt like he was a walking cheat code. He was somebody where he shouldn't be that big. He shouldn't be that strong. And if he is that strong, he shouldn't be that fast. And 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 he was everything. So it was like he was like the corner that never came. Like he was trying to run the corner as a defensive end, you try to get the corner. He was a corner that never came because he was so long and so fast. By the time you ran around him, you ran twenty yards up the field. You know, and the play will be done. So, you know, the only advantage that I had against him was that I was the polar opposite of what he normally sees on a consistent basis. He had to, like, block at his ankles to try to block me, which is which is great. <laughs> so, that was the only advantage I had. But other than that, man, that, that, that guy gave me nightmares. Did, did you have any success against him, Dwight? Is, is there any yeah. game you remember? Hey, yeah, I got the better yeah. of him. Yeah, I had a couple good ones. And I said the only reason why is because I was – different for him to block a guy that was so different than him. You know, I got I have natural leverage, you know, the height thing, right? Natural leverage. So I was unable to get under him a couple times and get him moving because of my speed and things of that nature. And he was blocking somebody that wasn't his typical size. So he had, you know, maybe it broke down some of the fundamentals or something that he normally has or whatever. You know, because it's hard. You, you watch film trying to prepare for a guy and you kind of watch film and say, okay, this move really works good on him. This is what I'm going to do. So you watch film on him, you see nothing. <laughs> you don't see anybody winning or beating him. So it's kind of like, all right, well, shoot, that's, that's out the window. The tape is out the window. Let me just go out and just give my hardest effort and hopefully, you know, what I'm doing actually works. And, um, you know, it happened to work, but it didn't work all the time. He's the only guy that I would say, like, I literally could just like stonewall me, throw me, eject me <laughs> across the field. You know, so I think the first time I actually rushed, had a pass rush against him, I was a you know I might have been a rookie year, 
And I bull rushed him. And I was like, oh, yeah, this Jonathan Ogden. I got him. I'm going to surprise him with a bull rush. Well, I, I had him moving back about two steps. And after that, the last thing I remember, I was flying through the air because he tossed me another five yards. He tossed me further than I actually drove him. You know, so it was just like, oh, well, I guess I'm in the NFL now. <laughs> Dwight, now, now you're out of the NFL. You're eligible for the Hall of Fame in 2023. Do you think about the Hall at all? You know what? I, 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 I partially do. You know, and I, and, I, and I partially don't. And I, when I say that, it's like, I, yes, I would love to be in the Hall of Fame. And that's something that, you know, is that icing on the cake, cake type of deal, you know. Um, but I also know it's not up to me. I've already put my work in, and it's going to be what it's going to be. There's no going back. You know, it's, it's you know, guys like you guys and whoever else votes, you, you know, you look at whatever I've done or whatever influences that I've, you know, brought to the game and say, hey, you know, this guy deserves to be in the, in the Hall of Fame or not. You know, I don't, I know this that I left my mark on the game. You know, before me, there wasn't any guy really drafted like me doing the things that I do on a consistent basis. If there was a guy my size being drafted, see, that guy was a specialty guy, maybe. You know, thrown in on only third down situations, maybe. You know, and so I know, like, when I turn the television on on draft day or when I see the NFL now, how it's, how you have guys who are, you know, not the tallest guys in the world, around my height, and they're allowed to brush the passer. I know I left my mark, you know, and, it, and when you sit there and watch and you see guys using spin moves, I know I 100% left my mark. So for me, is that I left my mark in the game, you know, and whatever happens outside of that, you know, God willing, hopefully it happens. But if it doesn't, it is what it is. Today's game obviously has changed so much. You know, you, you, you can't hit, you not only can't hit the quarterback, you can't even land on top of him if you happen to be allowed <laughs> yeah. to tackle him, which is the most. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've ever heard so, you ask, for, ask for permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I asked Matthew, I said, uh, now that he's coaching, I said, uh, what do you say to a lineman who says, what, where am I supposed to land after I tackle a guy if they're going to yell at me for landing on top of him? And he, he said, I really, he didn't have an answer. But uh, how would you have had to alter your rushing style uh, if you were playing well, 2018? Well, I don't even think I altered. I, I, I'd, be, I'd be completely honest. It's, it's going to be to the to the discretion of the ref, and I think that's the problem with the game right now. It's too subjective. It's it's you know if the ref thinks it was a hard hit, if the, if the quarterback acts like he got hurt, you know, um, it's it's all those things. Like I don't, uh, it's it's too hard to be rushing the quarterback. Get you know a guy like Johnson Ogden or whoever on your back. You're you're for your life against that guy, okay? So by the time you finally get to the quarterback, because your momentum hasn't stopped, you're still running as fast as you possibly, human possibly can to get to the quarterback. When you get there, it's not like the quarterback is allowing you and letting you just tackle him and sack him. And, and you know, It's not like that. It's a guy trying to, to not get sacked. It's a guy who wants to throw you off. I've missed probably 40 or 50 sacks in my career because a quarterback isn't even a mobile quarterback. I'm talking about just a normal quarterback where I think I have him, and he kind of throws me off. He kind of just, like, lays his arms or he moves his feet to where I fall off. So if you're trying to get the sack, 
and you gotta you gotta hit him. You gotta put some force into him. If you don't, you're going to be missing a lot of sacks and a lot of plays, and you're going to be hurting your team. And the landing on him is the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's because look, you're making a tackle. All right, running backs can get landed on. Receivers can get landed on. Everybody can get landed on. And and you're not trying to necessarily hurt the quarterback when you land on him. But in the end, if your momentum happens to take you that way, and the and the line and the lineman offensive lineman is on your back. There's nowhere else to go. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like, how do you, how do you, how do you position yourself to where you make that tackle and a secure tackle? Yeah, you can try to not and lean your body to the side, but you're now running the risk of missing a tackle, costing your team the game, costing your your career because you might get cut because you're not making tackles, you're not making plays. That which means causes your family food on the table, and it's too many. <laughs> You know, it's, a, it's too many things. So basically, to make a long story short, I wouldn't change anything. I would let the I would I would let the ref make the call. If the ref's going to make the call, then so be it. It's going to be the call. But I can't alter my game because it's too hard to get there. <laughs> hey Dwight, thanks so much for the time. Love talking to you, and best of luck going forward with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Hey man, no problem. Thank you for having me. That was former Colts star Dwight Franey. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're just about finished, so shake it, Walt Anderson here. Would you please? That's the two-minute warning. Yeah, that means it's time for the two-minute drill, so let's get going, guys. Best back in L.A., Melvin Gordon or Todd Gurley? John Heisman. He has five trophies over at uh, Southern Cal's campus. Uh, Jim Brown. He's in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Who wins the NFC East? (laughs) Oh, please. Oh, God. Try topping that, Ron. Brought to you by the Michigan State Marching Band. Uh, who wins the <laughs> yeah, NFC East? Right. Who cares? Yeah. Deion Lewis calls the Patriots cheap. What do you call them? The reigning NFL runners-up. I call them very cheap. <laughs> the Bills got Nathan Peterman. What's next for him? ESPN College Game Day Analyst. <laughs> A weekday job. What's keeping John Harbaugh from starting Lamar Jackson? The Super Bowl ring on Joe Flacco's hand. <laughs> or common sense. Yeah. True or false, John Harbaugh coaches the Ravens in 2019. False. Ozzie and everyone else from the Super Bowl era will be gone. False. Eric DaCosta turns him and says, quote the Raven, nevermore. There you go. New Orleans just signed Brandon Marshall. Why? They need someone to carry Michael Thomas's bags on game day. <laughs> and his cell phone. <laughs> Dirk Gutter takes over the play calling in Tampa. What difference will he make? Unless he's taking over the defensive play calling, absolutely none. Yeah, I would say for the Bucks, none, but for himself, it probably will hasten his departure. Bad move. X-Men refers to A, a Stan Lee cartoon, B, Ron Jeremy and John Holmes, or C, the Saints who salute Drew Des Bryant. The original X-Men, Wichita State, Woo Shocker, Xavier McDaniel. <laughs> X-Men refers to Caitlyn Jenner and Dr. Renee Richards. Beds slept in by U.S. presidents are up for auction. When is one slept in by Roger Goodell? You mean the one with the horse head? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Good one. Sometimes after they, sometime after they sell Rutherford B. Rutherford B. Hayes' bed. 
Amazon chose Queens in a Washington suburb for its second headquarters. What should the NFL choose as its second? San Diego. The NFL is in dire need of a presence there. <laughs> Vegas. Now that they're in the gambling business, why not? That's the end of the game. Yeah, why not? Well, we'd like to thank Dwight Freeney, Von Miller, Ulysses Harada, and Paul Kowarski for joining us. Shay Raftis for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.